You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But first, breaking news in Vancouver where there has been gunfire this afternoon. Police are on the scene in the area of East 33rd and Argyle Street. And that's where our Catherine Urquhart is as well. Catherine, bring us up to speed on what happened there. Well, Chris, Sophie, this is the scene of the latest shooting in Metro Vancouver. It happened at about 2 p.m. right here behind me on East 34th at Argyle. Since then, dozens of police officers have been in this neighborhood. At least three shots were fired into a silver Honda Civic, which was towed away just about an hour ago. Police are not saying if anybody was inside the vehicle at the time of the shooting. However, they are confirming that nobody was hurt. And they closed off the whole block uh, for several hours. Residents couldn't even go back into their own home. And uh, it's kind of scary because we don't really get told what's happening other than that there are uh, people living at that house that are of uh, questionable background. Now, police believe that this was a targeted attack. However, it remains unclear how this incident may or may not be connected to the ongoing gang conflict in Metro Vancouver. Sophie, Chris, back to you. Catherine Urquhart, live in Vancouver. Thanks, Catherine. RCMP are looking for a man involved in a fatal crash on the Hope Princeton Highway. Witnesses say the suspect crashed into the back of a maintenance truck. And while his female passenger lay dying, he jumped into another vehicle and took off. John Hua has more on the efforts by Good Samaritans to save the life of the passenger and who police are looking for. John. Well, Sophie, we're here on Highway 3 just outside of Hope and you can still see that there is blood stains in the middle of the highway. Now, when most people arrive to a horrific crash scene, what they do is they stop their vehicles and they come out and rush to help. But as we're hearing, one individual went to extreme lengths to flee the scene. That's the SUV that's uh, when Warren Hobart and his family pulled up to the scene on Highway 3, they knew it was bad. I have never seen a vehicle demolished so badly. Like There were pieces of bumper and car. And the collision happening just east of Hope around 3 o'clock Monday afternoon. Witnesses say a black SUV was weaving through traffic before hitting a service vehicle. Among the first on scene, a BC wildfire crew on their way home. They uh, secured the scene and started to uh, help out the young lady, and uh, she required CPR at that time. As the crew tried desperately to save the injured passenger's life, the driver of the SUV doing the unthinkable. And we thought, oh, some vehicles are going through. And the guy said, oh my God, that guy just stole the forestry truck. Despite their efforts, the passenger succumbed to her injuries. The stolen wildfire truck last seen heading towards Hope. Well, this is just really low-life behavior, uh, but I just want to say that, that the BC Wildfire Service uh, crew are just uh, heroes. RCMP now looking for a Caucasian male, height 5'9 to 5'10, with short, dark-colored hair. Described as having a thin face, slim waist and broad shoulders, and some facial stubble. He was also wearing a white and red motorcycle jacket and tan shorts at the time. We're asking that anyone who may have information about this suspect or dealt with him since the crash to please call 911. If you see him, do not approach him. For the many who stopped to try and help, the outcome hard to accept. It feels like a movie. It feels like something out of, you know, like something that's coming in the theaters or something. It just doesn't feel real. Nothing more real than the tragedy of being abandoned in your final moments. Still, witnesses pray the victim knows how many people, albeit strangers, were by her side.
Now, there is an update from the RCMP in regards to that B.C. wildfire truck. They say it has been found, but of course, the person driving it is still on the loose. They're asking for anyone with information to please give them a call. Sophie? John Hwal reporting for us tonight. John, thank you. Right at a key point in the season, fire has ripped through Chilliwack hop farms, burning the harvesting plant to the ground. And while it could have been devastating for the owners, Jeff Hastings explains why they won't be out of business for long. The smell of hops and fire hangs in the Chilliwack air, the charred ribs of the farm's processing building defiantly upright, but not for long. Well, hell of a way to start a day. John Lawrence owns the operation. He's one of the first people to bring hops back to the Fraser Valley. Once a signature crop in the region, the resurgence is a local success story. Just got it perfect. You know, everything was working like a Swiss watch. And um, when that went up, it was pretty devastating. A worker arrived early in the morning to find the facility ablaze. It was rocking through the roof, so they surrounded it and, and attacked it from all sides. They wanted to protect the exposures over my left shoulder here. They wanted to protect that equipment, so that they accomplished that. The harvester still stands. The season can be salvaged. Within the next 24, we should be harvesting again and drawing in another location. Steel and Oak Brewing Company is one of many craft beer creators in the lower mainland that uses hops from Chilliwack Hop Farms. It's a two-way street. The explosion of the craft beer scene has enabled hop farming to come back to provide local ingredients for local beer. Extremely essential. Um, we use hops in, in every beer we make, and uh, as more and more breweries open up, uh, there's a, you know we need more and more hops, especially locally grown hops. John is grateful, amazed at how the hop community instantly stepped up to help him. His harvest will go on. His business will barely miss a beat. It's not going to put a, a shortage of beer in the country. <laughs> by any means. Jeff Hastings, Global News. The city of Vancouver is launching an awareness campaign about the empty homes tax. The goal is to clear up current misconceptions and confusion. But there's criticism tonight for how the city is getting that message out. Grace Key explains why there are concerns over the hiring of an ad agency. Grace. Well, Sophie, the exact cost of this advertising campaign is yet to be determined, but some are wondering why it's necessary at all, given the city of Vancouver's corporate communication staff. When it comes to Vancouver's empty homes tax, it turns out people are still confused about the new process that requires all Class 1 residential property owners to make an annual property status declaration. So the city wants to hire an ad agency to get the message across through paid media channels. Target ads will focus on those who don't speak English and aren't computer savvy. Some are wondering why this is necessary given the city's corporate communications team. With all due respect to staff, I think they're doing, a, you know, they do a good, good job. It's really a question of how Vision Vancouver runs our city. And they have decided that uh, communications people are a priority. Uh, and you would think that there would be a skill set there. But, you know, I mean, obviously we'll have to see. But uh, I'm surprised that we need this kind of support from an outside agency. A March report shows the city of Vancouver has 33 people working on its corporate communication staff in a budget this year of at least $2.3 million. Part of its function is to come up with strategic approaches to communicating city policies. We wanted to know if the ad campaign was within the scope of the city's corporate communications job function. So we reached out to the communications team, hoping to speak with someone on camera. After a series of emails throughout the day, a written response was given late in the afternoon. 
The city is hiring a third party because it wants to ensure that every effort is made to educate the impacted public about this new tax process. Answers to a follow-up question were not available by deadline. As for the cost, the city does not disclose budgets when dealing with submissions by vendors. NPA Vancouver City Councillor George Affleck also wonders how the message will be delivered. Well, if they're leaving their homes empty, that might mean they're not actually in the city to see the advertising. So exactly who are we marketing to? This is a time-sensitive project. Now, the request for the proposal came out yesterday. So ad agencies who are interested are going to have to quickly come up with a proposal, submit it to the city. The city will pick one, and then they hopefully will have this campaign up and running by late October. Sophie? All right, Grace, thank you. Residents of a Surrey neighborhood are speaking out tonight, surprised to learn a convicted sex offender is living nearby. Paul Callow, known as the balcony rapist, served 20 years in prison for a series of violent sexual assaults on women in Ontario. And while his new neighbours may not like it, Romina Dea explains why there's been no warning. For one year, a convicted serial rapist has been living under the radar in Surrey's Fleetwood neighbourhood. His home close to a school. Residents just found out a few days ago. Immediately I was disgusted. Very shocked, disturbed right away and angry. The residents don't want to be identified because they're concerned for their safety. Bottom line, they want Paul Douglas Callow to move. Callow, the AKA balcony rapist, spent 20 years in jail after he was convicted for raping five women at knife point in the mid 80s. He was released a decade ago and has no new convictions. I had found out that he'd been here for a year and known what he'd done and his history and couldn't believe that there was no community consultation with anyone before he showed up in our neighbourhood. The Ministry of Justice says it can't provide details because of privacy concerns. There is no public sex offender registry in Canada which details where offenders live. The school district is aware of parents' concerns, but legally, its hands are tied. We are sensitive to those concerns and uh, have been in contact with the RCMP, Surrey RCMP. There's no heightened risk to the community, and uh, that's where it sits. Surrey RCMP were unavailable for an on-camera interview, but they did tell us this. Callow's current status, he's under no restrictions and no conditions. This prisoner's advocate says Callow has served his time, a decade with no new convictions. Demanding he leave the neighbourhood doesn't help. If the goal is to increase public safety, causing him more stress and destabilizing his housing isn't going to have that effect. Callow did not respond to our request for an interview. This is what he told Global News after his release in 2007. I just really need to know that you're not going to hurt anybody else. That, that is true. Surrey residents still say you never know what could happen. Maybe there should be some sort of a warning system when he moves into a neighbourhood, especially close to a school like that, especially with so many mothers dropping off their children in the morning and him committing so many offences against women. Romina Dea, Global News. The battle over short-term rentals is about to heat up. The city of Vancouver brought in a whole load of regulations and a crackdown on anyone who breaks the rules. But one group says the bylaws are doomed to fail unless the websites themselves step up. What Airbnb is being asked to do in just over a minute. A stunning video of a plane crash the pilot walked away from. Why, in so many ways, it was actually a perfect landing later. 
And caught on camera, Irma's wicked winds ripping the roof right off a home. And now the frantic attempt to rebuild in a place residents used to call paradise. That's still to come on the news hour. Well, as we continue our series on livability, we shift our focus to the rental housing crisis. More and more people who are forced to give up on home ownership because of skyrocketing prices are finding the rental market is really no better. So what needs to be done at the municipal and provincial levels? Tanya Beja reports. In a city with a near zero vacancy rate, rental units are not only hard to find, they're also beyond reach for people like Sydney Haydick. Well, I'm an artist and I just can't pay rent in Vancouver. I just can't. I can't afford it. The median rent for a one-bedroom in Vancouver hovering near $2,000 a month, a two-bedroom, $2,600. Half the city of Vancouver rents, yet they are uh, oftentimes feeling victimized by the system that has let them down. Across the Lower Mainland, municipalities are struggling to keep up with demand for affordable housing, giving developers incentives like reduced fees to build rentals or offering city land for new rental construction. Yes, we need to be building, but we need to be building homes that average people can actually afford to live in. Judy Graves is calling for a property surtax on Vancouver's most expensive homes and wants speculators to give back up to half the money they earn on a quick turnaround. Those who profit from flipping housing will need to give a part of their profit back to the city to build affordable rental. For Jean Swanson, tackling supply is only part of the solution. She's calling on the province to freeze rent levels for four years. When tenants leave, landlords can jack it up to whatever the market will bear. So how do you stop this? We need a rent freeze now. The provincial budget offered $208 million for additional rental stock around B.C. The finance minister says more relief is on the way. We're going to put in place a comprehensive housing strategy. That's going to take some time, but it's going to include everything from a look at taxes, including the renter's rebate and other ideas that people will bring forward. Renters will have to wait until February for details. Tanya Beja, Global News. The brutal rental situation in Vancouver is partly blamed on the rise of Airbnb rentals. The city has proposed a new set of rules governing short-term rentals, but some say it's bound to fail. Nadia Stewart has more on this, and Nadia, critics want Airbnb to police itself, but not everyone's convinced even that'll work. Yeah, that's right, Chris. They say regulation without accountability equals nothing and that without enforcement, the situation with short-term rentals in this city won't improve. Meet the requirements. For Jonathan Milne, it was a rude awakening. After fire forced him out of his West End apartment, he almost found himself priced out of the neighborhood. The rents are just, they're beyond my means to get what I had. He's found something now, but worries the influx of short-term rentals could have a long-term impact. We're already going to having a struggle in the community because of the rent increases. People are having to leave. My fear is that I won't be able to afford to live there in time. Well, I can't imagine. The hotel worker lending his voice to a coalition called Fair B&B. One calling on the city to demand more accountability from Airbnb and other short-term rental sites. Saying the city should require those platforms be modified so they enforce any proposed regulatory changes. Airbnb themselves have to be legally uh, constricted to not list suites illegally. Only ones that have already have a license are able to be listed. The fact that uh, 
They're not uh, in, encouraging or requiring the Airbnb, the other platforms have accountability in terms of enforcing any regulation that they uh, put forward is really missing an opportunity and is going to not necessarily solve, solve the challenge. Those here generally support the city's proposed regulations, which would require homeowners register to rent short term, but say the bylaw needs more bite behind it. Airbnb is calling out the coalition, describing Fairbnb as a front group funded by the big hotels. Airbnb says it wants to be regulated and has always advocated for fair, sensible home-sharing regulations. Still, this isn't the first time critics have demanded a tougher response from City Hall. They're not going to see any success unless they are able to build in this platform accountability into their bylaw. The city will be holding public consultations on short-term rentals. That's expected to happen sometime this fall. Back to you, Chris. All right, Nadia, thank you. The grandma who stole the show at TIFF. And I said, George, my daughter is in love with you. She's not the only one. The viral (laughs) photo that captures her tender moment with George Clooney, she explains how it happened later. But first, good call by Apple, making some major improvements to its iconic iPhone. But will the price put this you on hold? Your secure password. An emotional appeal to find a missing Duncan woman tonight. Susan Mitchell, a mother of four, left everything behind when she was last seen a week ago. Niju Garcia explains why her family fears a recent tragedy might have sent her into a downward spiral. She was a good mom. It's been a week since Gail Montgomery's daughter disappeared. And as the days go on, concern grows. This is horrible. She says 9 p.m. Tuesday, her daughter, Susan Mitchell, was laying in bed with her partner. By the time he woke up, she was gone without a trace. Her wallet, ID, cash and credit cards all left behind. With no signs the 34-year-old is safe, Montgomery is worried sick. Personally pretty shaky, but it's not about me right now. It's about those kids. Mitchell is mother to two boys and stepmother to two other children, her youngest just six years old. Poor little guy, he needs, he needs his mom, Susan, he yeah. needs some. He needs RCMP are asking anyone with information to contact them. We have used search and rescue here in the Couchin Valley, um, speaking with family and friends, gathering some tips from the public. But there's a twist. This isn't the first RCMP-involved search for Mitchell. In 2013, shortly after putting her two sons to bed, she vanished from their then Lower Mainland home. Forty officers worked around the clock to find her in a case called High Risk and involving serious crimes investigators. This is a first. Everybody we speak to go, this is a first. After 36 hours missing, she was found in New Westminster unharmed. Her children were taken by the Ministry of Children and Family Development and fostered by Montgomery and her husband until a few years ago. She was always emotionally fragile. But Mitchell is said to have turned her life around. She was doing a lot better, her mother says, until... One of the boys' fathers died of, an, uh, we suspect, an overdose. And that could have been the triggers for her. Everyone makes mistakes, Montgomery says, urging her daughter to seek help. Your boys need you. And just hoping it's not already too late. Need to Garcha, Global News, Duncan. Let's hope for some good news mm-hmm. soon. One of Canada's most iconic parks, bordering B.C. in jeopardy from wildfires. And a vacation paradise in ruins. There's not much left of the Florida Keys, but residents say they'll be back and stronger than ever. And a cartwheeling plane crash caught on camera and the miracle that saved the pilot.
an amazing sight in Miami as Hurricane Irma tears the roof off a two-story building. The roof lands on the home next door. No word on whether anyone was injured. Hardest hit were the Florida Keys, where 25% of the homes were destroyed. 15 million people in Florida are without power, and they will be for some time. Life for the people who have begun the long cleanup process reduced to scavenging for whatever might help them get by. Tonight, in some parts of the Florida Keys, what was once a paradise, now completely destroyed. I couldn't see eight feet away. It was such a whiteout of water. In one family's home, the clock stopped around one, just hours after Hurricane Irma made landfall. Every door's gone, the roof's gone. Mobile homes tossed over fences and demolished. Here in Big Pine Key, some homes ripped off their foundation while other homes completely flattened. Many of these neighborhoods ghost towns after residents evacuated, while those who braved the storm are just starting to check on the damage. Some scavenging through debris to find gas, batteries, and water. We need water, food, um, we need gas. And in the stretch of highway linking some of America's most famous sailing communities, broken boats litter the roads and the shores. Irma's impacts are still crippling much of the southeast. In Jacksonville, it could take a week for historic floodwaters to recede. Today, the mayor praised first responders for rescuing more than 350 people from rising waters. What I saw on the ground yesterday was uh, uh, nothing short of what the definition of what humanity should be all about. Streets in Charleston still flooded after four feet of water rushed into downtown. And in Georgia, at least two people were killed by falling trees from Irma's ferocious winds. But there are some hopeful signs that normalcy is returning. The Miami and Fort Lauderdale airports reopened today. I got three flights, and so whichever one is going to be on time and that's actually going to come through, I, I hope to be on. And in Miami Beach, bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic as residents were allowed to return home for the first time. The road to recovery may be the longest here in the Florida Keys, but those who live here say they're ready to rebuild. We're going to come back strong. Everybody that lives here in this community, we will survive. We will survive this. Gotti Schwartz, NBC News, Kajoki, Florida. And how about this close call in Georgia where Irma's winds knocked down a tree right in front of that car? Boom. Okay. Split second later, and this obviously would have been tragic. As it is, there were no serious injuries. Wow. An out-of-control wildfire in southwestern Alberta is forcing hundreds of people from their homes and has moved inside a national park on the Canada-U.S. border. Global Lethbridge's Joe Scarpelli is live at one of the evacuation centers for us tonight. Joe, what's the latest? Hi, Sophie. The last 24 hours have been chaotic here. We got here on Friday, and for the first time last night, we saw flames from the Kenau fire coming up over the mountains. Just an incredible scene. There were fire, uh, uh, fire trucks, RCMP cruisers scattered all over the park. And today we learned that the fire actually doubled in size overnight. It's now roughly 20,000 hectares. The fire got dangerously close to the town site, which everybody was hoping it would avoid. We learned this morning that the um, visitor center and uh, several outbuildings were destroyed. And uh, on a positive note, today the winds have died down. We are expecting some rain this week and officials are hoping that that will slow things down. Yeah, we certainly saw a lot of fires here, a lot of evacuations in BC over the summer. How are the evacuees uh, in your area holding out tonight? 
Well, Sophie, it's been uh, the we just spoke to um, the, the people in the evacuation center, and um, <clears throat> it seems like people have a place to stay, but people are trickling in and out. But we were here <clears throat> last night, and it was jam packed, full of emotions, people crying. People didn't know where their animals were. It was very, very emotional, and they're all just wondering when they'll be able to to get home and what they'll be going home to. Sophie. Right, hoping for the best. Joe, thanks for that. Joe Scarpelli uh, from Global Lethbridge for us. Well, some heart-stopping video out of Connecticut of a very lucky plane crash. Lucky because the Cessna crashed into a tree on the way down, slowing it down before it landed upright on the ground. The pilot, a 79-year-old man who said he was just going to breakfast, was treated for minor injuries. No word yet on what caused the crash. Well, fans of Apple are known and sometimes mocked a little bit for lining up to be the first to buy the new iPhone. But will today's release of Apple's 10th anniversary iPhone test that legendary consumer loyalty with an unprecedented price tag? NBC's Lucy Kafana reports. The future of the smartphone. At Apple's new Steve Jobs Theater, the tech giant unveiling two updated iPhones, the 8 and the 8 Plus, and an Apple Watch that lets you ditch the phone. We do have... One more thing. One more thing. But the star of the show... This is iPhone 10. It is the biggest leap forward since the original iPhone. It's light, it's sleek, and for the first time ever, there's no home button. The iPhone 10 recognizes your face to unlock. But this new technology doesn't come cheap. The starting price, $1,000. This is the most expensive base entry price for an iPhone ever. And I do believe you're going to find people who are going to jump all over this phone. The new phone offers a brighter display, better battery life, wireless charging, and animated emojis that follow your face. After a recent slump that saw Android account for 67% of U.S. smartphone sales, Apple is under pressure to get it right. It works like magic. It's been 10 years since Steve Jobs unveiled the phone that would change everything. We can now reflect on him with joy instead of sadness. Steve's spirit and timeless philosophy on life will always be the DNA of Apple. The Apple founder may be gone, but today his influence is alive and well. Lucy Kafanov, NBC News, Cupertino, California. In Health Matters, every year thousands of children suffer from debilitating hip and bone conditions which could have been avoided with earlier diagnosis. Hip dysplasia is the most common developmental hip deformity in children and late diagnosis can mean a lifetime of surgery and loss of mobility. Well, a leading children's orthopedic surgeon at BC Children's Hospital is working to change that. Lynn Collier reports. Hello, Angela. How are you? Even though he was checked at birth, as all children should be, Mason is here for another test for hip dysplasia because of his family history. I was born with hip dysplasia when I was young and it was missed. So I was probably about two when they discovered it. So I just really wanted to make sure that he wasn't, uh, he didn't have it as well. Dr. Kishore Mulpuri is leading a global initiative to improve hip health and mobility for children. He wants a standardized test that can be used worldwide. Hip dysplasia happens when the ball and socket are either partially or completely dislocated. There's no pain associated, so it's often not noticed until the child is walking. Treatment is simple if it's caught early. If it's missed, those children 
actually have a lifelong disability and the quality of life is affected permanently. It can be fixed, so in some children this could be quite devastating and might take their childhood away completely. Dr. Mulpuri graduated from medical school in India. Surgeons there do two or three surgeries a day trying to correct hip dysplasia that was diagnosed late. 98% of the children that I met with dislocated hips were walking age children. Hey, Ella, how are you? Ella Strode had hip dysplasia, which was found accidentally when she had an unrelated x-ray. She was three and already walking. Looking back, you know, there were times that she would certainly favor one leg over the other and she was slow to start walking. So I think if, if children can have their, their, uh, their hips diagnosed when they're very young, it's just will be a great thing. Lynn Collier, Global News. Doing good work. All right, caregivers in a crisis. PC Ambulance for what city? At the 911 call center how dogs are answering the call to keep everyone calm. And quality time with Clooney. Global News tracks down the grandma who stole the show on the red carpet. Well, who hasn't wanted to do this to George Clooney? After the forecast, we'll hear from the Toronto grandmother who got a little cheeky with the superstar at the Toronto Film Festival. <laughs> so cute. He yes. loved it. I oh, was he gonna did. say he was he all over that. All right, <laughs> meteorologist Christy Gordon. Looks like uh, the beginnings of a nice sunset, Christy. Yes, an absolutely gorgeous sunset actually out there. Uh, we did see a fair amount of cloud today, a few sprinkles in the morning, but it turned out like this. Beautiful. 19 was our high. That's average for this time of year, so we're right where we should be. Uh, as we head into the next couple of days, generally dry, but there are a few areas that do have a chance to showers tomorrow. I'll show you those in a second. First, though, uh, only one part of the province has an air quality advisory right now, and that's a southeastern corner. That's where we have the most of the fires of note right now, 11 of them. We've seen huge reprieve through the Caribou and central interior regions, a majority of them in the southeast. And in particular, the Waterton Lakes and Kenow Fire, you can see how massive it is. And look at the plume of smoke extending east from there. Uh, so we'll be tracking this very closely. There is a little bit of relief for that area, but it's not until Thursday. I'll show you that uh, in a second. But the reason why that area is so bad right now with fires is because they had a lot of wind gusts last night, uh, yesterday afternoon and last night, actually, up to about 70 kilometers an hour. But thankfully, they've eased off still some gusts up to about 30 kilometers an hour for that area. But that will ease out. Now, it looks like good news right now. Look at all the moisture just north of that area. But unfortunately, it is shifting off into Alberta. We're watching a number of lightning strikes, hoping that no more fires are ignited uh, just in the caribou region there, but uh, we'll be watching for that tomorrow. But yeah, all of that moisture shifts out of that region tomorrow, so staying dry there tomorrow, but it comes back around down into that region on Thursday, and that's what we're hoping for Thursday with a little bit of relief into Friday as well. One also, one other thing that I wanted to uh, mention, uh, temperatures are going to drop uh, through the overnight periods Thursday into a Friday, so there is a chance that some of those east Eastern sections of the Kootenays could see a little bit of snow at higher elevations. That's the first time I've said that word so far this season. So keep an eye out for that, that's for sure. All right, so for the north, mostly dry, just a chance of showers from the BC Peace River down through the central interior tomorrow afternoon. Bulk of the moisture in through the Columbia region tomorrow. Just a chance of showers in the eastern Kootenay region, but otherwise dry across the south. A slight chance of a shower in the Fraser Valley for you tomorrow afternoon. Otherwise, 
south coast dry but chilly. 18 degrees is our high for tomorrow. We do warm up though on Thursday and Friday. 22 with plenty of sunshine. No chance of showers until Sunday. Happy anniversary to Yvonne and Larry Thompson celebrating 70 years together. And if you want to get out of the smoke, head up over the clouds. Thanks to Murray Williams for that shot. Okay, guys. Nice flight. Terrace to Vancouver. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Christy. Well, it's the face squeeze seen around the world. I'm tempted to do it to you right now. Demonstrate. (laughs) This one. Oh, like Mm. that. A Toronto grandmother has gone viral for her close encounter with superstar George Clooney at the Toronto International Film Festival. The festival tweeted out the moment Alfred Wolf grabbed Clooney's chin saying, your Nona found George and told him he wasn't eating enough. That immediately set off an online Photoshop battle. Yeah, a poster for a movie called FaceTime starring George and your granny. George and your granny and Hansel and Gretel. This classic romance, not to mention this slightly weird version. Global Toronto tracked down the Hansy grandma who doesn't really know what all the fuss is about. And then he came closer and I said, George, my daughter is in love with you. And he says, oh my God. And then he put his hand over, and before we know, he held my hand, and I went like this. <laughs> did he smile? What did he do? Oh, yeah, he smiled. And you touched him. People touched each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to put it. People touch each other. What's the big That's deal? Right. <laughs> That's right. I touched the sky a little bit earlier today and dropped right down That's from right. it for the annual Easter Seals drop zone. Now, this is something you've done Many years in a row. I took your place today. <laughs> Thank you. Bravely that. took your place, I might say. It was quite it, crazy. Yeah, how was it? It was amazing. It was really <laughs> amazing. And I think we chopped a little something together. Here's a look at, at the descent from the top of the Guinness Tower downtown Vancouver today. <laughs> what do you guys need me to do now? Climb on out over the edge. Out over the edge. Here we go. What, what could possibly go wrong? Okay. There you go. No problem. I'm terrified, but I'm also looking in these office windows and going, those are really nice boardrooms. Whoa. How you doing, mister? Oh, here's a lady. See, show her. Oh, now I've completely blown it. I'm going sideways. Good. Oh, we're getting down near the bottom now. Hi, you guys. Woo-hoo. Oh. Oh, I made it. I feel elated. <laughs> Back on solid ground. Good not going to lie. Not going to lie. It was terrifying. But it was good. They, they, they were great crew, uh, great rigging crew, and I appreciate that. I always wonder, what does a crash helmet do from 20 floors? <laughs> Saves you from rocks falling on you, and that's about it. Okay. From the sky? Yeah. Okay. Well, in a normal mountain climbing in a application. meteor shower, it would really help. Yeah. Uh, Travis Lule is out the year with a knee injury. Does this end his career? I don't think it's fair for me to even go there yet. It's surgery, then rehab, before he starts thinking about his future. Also ahead, keeping calm in a crisis. Why it's a lot easier for 911 dispatchers with these guys around. So the Sammy Sallow of football is on the sidelines for a little while. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> well, Sammy I'm really Sallow, I, yeah, you, I know. I Sammy Sallow was a tough guy, good player, but just had bad luck, like Travis Lule. Okay, so here's what we know 
about Travis Lule's knee injury. He is out for the season. He will get it operated on when the swelling goes down. That should be in a few weeks. But we don't know if he wants to play football again, even though the knee should be fine by next season. We don't know because, truthfully, he doesn't know if he wants to play again. It's too soon to answer that question. It's really too early. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it's weird to think about. I mean, just even as you ask me that, it's, it kind of strikes me as odd just because, I mean, several days ago I'm just preparing to, you know, lead this team to a playoff spot, right? So it's just, it's just too raw to really say anything like that yet. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get to the point where I just feel sorry for myself and go, man, this isn't fair. I mean, it's not fair. The game's, the game's not fair. It, you know, and it happens to guys all the time, right? Um, I've just, you know, maybe taken more than my fair share, but that's, that's just the way it's been. Last season, Louis Erickson of the Vancouver Canucks was a first-team member of the all-overpaid All-Stars. 24 points for $6 million. That's $250,000 a point. When you're paid like a baller, you got a ball. But in Louis's defense, when he was signed, the feeling was he would be the Sedin's wingman. But that rarely happened. Willie Desjardins kept him apart most of the year. Now, maybe that kept his point totals down. Or maybe he's not a $6 million player. This year, he has to do something, or we could be talking about buyout before this contract ends. Uh, I know it wasn't the best year for me last year, and uh, I'm ready to get going this year. So, um... No, it was not the best of years for Louis Erickson, and the Canucks can't afford another non-productive season from a player they'll be shelling out $30 million to over the next five years. But just where does Louis Erickson slot in? He was supposed to be a fit alongside the Sedins, but the trio rarely skated together. Might that change under a new head coach? There was a couple of occasions last year where I felt that our line, when we played together, got going a little bit. And then we ran into some injuries and we had to, they had to change lines. And uh, that's what I told them after the season. Like, it felt like we, we had some chemistry going there for a couple of times during the season. But just for different reasons, they had to switch lines. And then we, we played with different players. So uh, we'll, we'll see what, what Travis does. The numbers from Erickson's inaugural Canucks campaign scream more bust than boom. His 11 goals, 23 points, the lowest numbers he's put up since being an NHL rookie 10 years ago. Erickson expects to be better this season, as do the Canucks. But how much better? Especially when you look at the speed and talent of the teams that they'll be facing in the Western Conference. Yeah, I didn't get the best start uh, coming here uh, first uh, like you said, 14 games, I didn't score a goal, and uh, it was just uh, hard to get something going. It was just a tough start, and uh, it felt like I uh, had to work uphill uh, through the whole season after that. So uh, I feel more comfortable coming in this year. The Whitecaps are home to Minnesota tomorrow. This is the middle of three games in seven days for Vancouver, but as busy as that is, at least all three are at home. Saturday, Columbus is in town. Win tomorrow, and the Whitecaps will be in first in the West. That's how much things have turned around for the Whitecaps. They won't go with the same starting 11 that beat Salt Lake on Saturday. I think there's a very good chance you'll see Alfonso Davies start. But if numbers mean anything, you've got to start Jordy Reyna. I know we can't start every game, but check this out. When Jordy has been in the starting lineups, the Whitecaps have... Three wins and two draws, no losses. And all three of his goals he has scored have been winning goals. Winning goals. 
Heat this up and soon soccer fans all over the city will be getting the Sideshow Bob haircut that Jordy Reyna shows us every game. There it is. The Canadians could win the Northwest League Championship tonight with a win over Eugene. Game four at Nat Bailey. If Eugene wins, game five would be tomorrow at Nat Bailey, and that would be the final game winner takes all. And tonight at Queen's Park Arena in New West, game four of the Man Cup of Lacrosse, 7.30, Salmon Bellies and Peterborough Lakers. New West leads the best of seven, two games to one. Champions League, remember, earlier this year in last season's Champions League, in the quarterfinals, Juventus knocked Barcelona out. This time, revenge. Lionel Messi beats Buffon here to make it 1-0. Messi would get one more to make it 3-0. And that would be the final. Barcelona over Juventus. Let's take a look at this. Messi stops, gets in the box, scores. Very nice. Three zip, the final. And Manchester United, Paul Pogba only lasted 19 minutes. Hamstring injury. Ashley Young with moves. Fellaini with the head. 3-0 Man U over FC Basel Faulty. There you go. That's quite the head. All right, yes. thanks. Thanks, Squire. Here's Jade Rat with a preview of Global News at 11. Thank you, Chris. We'll have more on the breaking news earlier in the show, the targeted shooting in Vancouver. Also ahead, we'll tell you about this chainsaw-toting nun helping to clean up after Hurricane Irma downed trees and caused all kinds of destruction in Florida. And Squire just mentioned this. Uh, we'll have highlights from Nat Bailey Stadium as the Vancouver Canadians try to clinch another league title. Perfect night for ball at the Nat. Fun night at the ballpark for sure. Thanks, Jay. All right, why ambulance dispatchers are going to the dogs. And it's a good thing. Up next. Coming up on ET Canada, Angelina Jolie on her family life and bringing her kids to TIFF. Plus, Christian Bale as Batman and James Franco as the disaster artist. And you are all invited to the set of Brett Kissel's latest video. That's coming up at 7 right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris and Sophie. Thank you very much, Roz. Well, they're among the first people you talk to in an emergency. Day after day, B.C.'s ambulance dispatchers deal with life-threatening crises and life-changing drama. The stress is enormous, but now dispatchers are getting some four-legged help. Linda Ellsworth reports. B.C. Ambulance for what city? The Vancouver Dispatch Centre for B.C. Ambulance takes more than 280,000 calls a year. Take a deep breath. Okay, I've got help started. Okay, tell me exactly what's happened. The dispatchers do more than send ambulances to calls. They keep people alive over the phone until help gets there. Listen closely, I'm going to teach you how to give CPR, okay? They're calling 911 because their life's falling apart, so being anything but calm on the phone is just going to escalate the situation even more. But while dispatchers seem calm on the outside, the stress can be emotionally exhausting. You can be pretty fatigued after a day here, even after one call. You can be pretty tired. You might have to leave the office, take a break, go for a walk. We do that a lot. Meet their latest coping mechanism. Hi, this is Maya. Hello. She's therapy dog. It's a pilot project, a partnership between BC Emergency Health Services and the St. John Ambulance Therapy Dog Program. Great job. Good girl. This is Maya and Heather's first day here, but they've seen the difference their visits make elsewhere. Their whole demeanor almost changes, you know. They just sort of get that relaxed look on their face, and just, it's really quite remarkable. I've seen it here. I've seen it in care homes. What a beautiful girl you are. The dispatchers have their supervisor to thank. He was trying to find a way to help them deal with the added burden brought on by the opioid crisis. I came with my own dog and it lit up the room. It changed a, a very, from a very dark environment to a very positive environment. 
uh, and it changed them all for the day. Now, two days a week for the next three months, a variety of therapy dogs will be paying visits as part of a study. If it works out as well as everyone hopes... Ultimately, what we'd like to see is we have, have 188 ambulance stations throughout the province, so what would that look like for us to be able to actually provide this type of therapy to our paramedics who are providing care? Thank you so much for bringing her up here. We just absolutely love it. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Where's our dog? Tuesdays are the best because it's adopt a pet day, right? And that's right.